Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. What does it mean when Ethan Allen, the quasi-mythological mountain man whose Green Mountain Boys represented the incarnation of triumphant American popular will during the Revolutionary War, authors a 477-page work of philosophy. Well, for some, it's nothing less than an oxymoron, and the only conclusion that could conceivably be reached is that he simply didn't write it at all. For best-selling author and independent scholar Matthew Stewart, however, a very different conclusion presents itself, that the story of the so-called Ethan Allen's Bible is a unique opportunity to trace the tangible impact of 18th-century deist ideas and the role they played in the creation of what came to be the United States of America. I thought we'd begin by taking a quote from your book, which is a quote of Jefferson on the Declaration of Independence, because the aspect, the essence of your book is to get a deeper understanding of the American Revolution. And of course, the American Revolution is not just one particular revolution, a squabble of one country revolting against the oppression or the, the yoke of another, but it is always looked upon, it has always been looked upon as a beacon to the world in terms of its opportunity to set an example. So here's what Jefferson said, as you had quoted, may it be to the world what I believe it will be, to some parts sooner, to others later, but finally to all, the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves, and to assume the blessings and security of self-government. That form which we have substituted restores the free right to the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion. All eyes are opened, are opening to the rights of man. The general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been horn with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. Heavy, heavy stuff. The American Revolution is one of the most significant events in modern history. And you, Matthew, have a very different take on what actually made it happen. Well, I, I started this project with a, um, with a, a general issue that I think um, that passage in, in Jefferson really illustrates very well. Um, the general issue is, uh, has history really changed, and have ideas changed it? Um, so the, to me, it seems obvious that there was some significant change over the last 200 years, something that caused a dramatic uh, change in the way human beings organize themselves and the amount of power that they have. Um, we call this sort of vaguely modernity. Uh, but something clearly happened. Jefferson clearly thought it was the result, or clearly anticipated this in, to some degree, uh, and attributed it to, uh, to reason, to science, to um, freedom of opinion. Uh, that's one salient point that comes out of this passage and that, that, ins that inspired me. Another thing that strikes me from what Jefferson says here um, is that there is clearly some kind of break going on with religion. I mean, he's basically saying 
in the past, people believed they were born to um, uh, ride under the boot of these uh, people who claimed to be ruling by the grace of God, and that's gone. Right. Um, so there is clearly in Jefferson's mind some significant break, uh, and it's a religious break of some sort. Uh, so that's a general issue that, that, that really inspired me, or that, that, that started to, to, to provoke me to, um, to look into the American Revolution in greater detail. I think most people think they have some understanding of the American Revolution. And one of the things that's, uh, that's particularly intriguing about your book is you have a different interpretation or different aspects of the interpretation of what was it that actually caused uh, not only the revolution to occur, but the revolution in the minds of the people to actually enable it to occur, the key people who were doing it. But you begin with a very personal experience for you as to how this epiphany happened, how your perspective on what triggered the American Revolution actually happened. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, the basic story is I, um, I saw a reference to Ethan Allen's book. Okay? Right. So Ethan Allen, he's not the furniture guy. He's the, um, <laughs> he was the leader of the Green Mountain Boys. Right. Um, and I'm sure a lot of Americans will remember. I certainly remember from my childhood the stories of uh, Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys doing crazy things. He's kind of like a Davy Crockett in the American Revolutionary period. Uh, he's the, you know, the wild man in the mountains. He leads a militia, um, and he uh, leads the first uh, offensive action in the American Revolution, right, where um, he and 83 hillbillies go up and take Fort Ticonderoga, which is the biggest fort uh, that the British have in North America. And so th the stories that you get as a child growing up in America, or at least parts of America where I was, involve Ethan Allen as this guy who could, uh, you know, chase down deer and, you know, lift, throw um, sacks of salt over his head with his teeth and things like that. Because he took over um, a whole fort single-handedly, or at least with 83 other guys. With 83 guys. 83 I, mean, the, I mean, the truth is they walked into it because their garrison was asleep. I mean, he had to wake the, uh, the guy up, the, uh, the British guy up. Out of, of which myths are made. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a certain kind of American myth that's made out of it, you know, of this sort of self-made, self-taught man, right? Um, but I, I saw a reference to his book, and I guess I... Somewhere along the line, I picked up the idea that he was a free thinker of sorts. Um, and so at, at a certain point, about eight years ago, I think, I just decided to look this book up. Uh, and now with the, the amazing digital technology, I'm just able to go to a library and, right. and pull it up. And um, as I started to read through it, I was, um, I was shocked. I mean, I was, I was about as shocked as anybody can be reading a book that was published in 1787 <laughs> um, and that basically just no one has read since. Right. It's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, if you read the Ethan Allen stories, they don't, they don't mention it that he wrote this book. So um, I should say that the reason why they don't mention it is that it was a pretty scandalous book in its own time. It was, a, a loosely speaking, a deist track. Um, it was, it's what we'd probably call now a free-thinking kind of thing. It actually reads fairly religious to modern sensibilities, although in its own time um, it was clearly identified as the work of an infidel. That's the term of art. But, you, but you, you had mentioned, I'll get back to you, sorry to interrupt you, but you had mentioned uh, that he was actually very proud of it, although other people don't, don't know it was a big thing for oh him. Oh, my God. Was, was I mean, that he was well, this is the other thing. I mean, I, after reading the book, I started reading his letters, and this wasn't just some kind of, well, first of all, people generally don't dash off 477-page books um, <laughs> on the spur of the moment. Usually it does mean something to them. Uh, but he was, he was signing his letters, you know, maybe hire somebody to do it, right? But he was signing his letters, The Philosopher. At this point, he's a general, but he calls himself The Philosopher, and right. He, uh, he writes to a friend in Paris saying, you know, put this before the academy, uh, the French academy, because by their judgment I will stand or fall. I mean, it was, this, was, you know, he, this was everything to him. Not, not, and, not a typical mountain man. 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, so what you realize is Ethan Allen is actually a pretty interesting character. And, you know, he was able to string together enough words to make 477 pages. And they're not the greatest string of words in the world, but it's, it's, um, it's an accomplishment. And it's certainly much more than you'd expect from a guy who can run through the woods naked and throw salt over his shoulders with his teeth. Um, but here's the, here was what was really interesting. It's not that he turned out to be smarter than you might have thought. Um, the thing is that um, I just recognized so much crazy philosophy that, according to my previous understanding of the American Revolution, should not have been there. So many tropes, so many arguments, so many phrases. Um, I'll just say them loosely right now, um, although it's a little bit of code. Um, he turns out to have been a believer in the eternity of the universe, uh, which is a it sounds like nothing today, eternal, not eternal, who knows. Um, in the late 17th, early 18th centuries, that was probably you know, the biggest flashpoint uh, in deciding whether you're, you're a crazy infidel or an orthodox believer. Right. Uh, he believed in the infinity of the universe. Um, he had um, a vision of uh, creation as something that never changes, that only undergoes transformations, but no creation or, or diminution. Um, he had, there were a number of other uh, very specific tropes like that that, to my mind, didn't belong in the American Revolution, um, certainly not before the American Revolution. Uh, uh, and, and most of these ideas, although it was published in 1787, clearly dated from before the Revolution. Uh, and so that got me uh, thinking uh, about the, the sources of the ideas in the American Revolution. Why didn't I understand this? Right. Um, and I should clarify by way of background that you know, my own interest has generally been in the history of um, early modern philosophy and let's say European philosophy. Um, and the reason for that, partly, is that I thought American philosophy is not very interesting. It's not very sophisticated um, and that most of the important ideas were all um, produced in Europe. And I guess I also had the idea that was encouraged by a number of the secondary sources on the American Revolution that the American Enlightenment was an essentially uh, moderate one. So kind of a watery, um, vague um, thing that didn't really go into the, the depths of these ideas that are coming out of Europe. So I guess I came with a certain philosophical baggage, right. uh, early modern philosophy, also ancient philosophy, which has always been an interest of mine. Um, and that's what I recognized there. Um, and I think that, that that was something I needed to explain. So, so Ethan Allen wrote this book. And in, in addition to these, these ideas, these expressions, that shocked you. Of course, there were also things I guess we should, we should point out. His, uh, he had a, so far as I understand it, he had a, a vehement uh, issue with organized religion and the, the organized priests. And there's this, there's, there's this sense, by priests, of course, I mean the priesthood. I don't mean necessarily Catholic priests. Right, well, like, like, the, whole, like, the whole organization. Like most of the members of the Enlightenment, he, priestcraft was uh, anathema to him. And, and priestcraft being the sort of analog of witchcraft, I guess you could say, you know, duping the masses to extract money and uh, favor from them. You see these ideas, you're captivated by these particular ideas, and I'm guessing you're wondering, where did they come from? How could this person who's, as you say, not only how could this person who's, who's supposed to be so uneducated and so wild actually come up with this, but what does this mean in a broader context in terms of the, right. the American Revolution? Well, I want, I want to just tell you the, the rest of the story, because I, I really like this part of the story, and then I'll get to that. Yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. So, so, um, it, it turns out not many people have read the Ethan Allen book, but the few who have are these Vermont historians who are like really pro-Vermont. So 
at some point in the middle of the 19th century, they decided that this book was too well-informed and too erudite for Ethan Allen, the mountain man, to have written. Right. Which um, really means that they just bought into the myth of Ethan Allen as a mountain man, which they themselves had created, uh, and then couldn't reconcile the fact that he'd written a philosophy book. So they decided he couldn't have written it. Uh, and then they accused this man named Thomas Young. So Thomas Young, um, I decided to investigate him, who is this crazy man who wrote this book. Um, and I assumed, you know, for, I'd say, several, two or three years after I got picked up this interest, that Thomas Young was, was in fact, the author of Ethan Allen's Bible. So, um, so, the, so the claim is that it was just complete plagiarism, that, that, that Ethan Allen didn't, didn't write it, and, and he clearly wasn't intelligent enough or sophisticated enough to write it, even though it was a horrible book. He was maybe horrible enough, but he wasn't smart enough to be able to do it. So, so yeah. Thomas, it was really the work of Young, and he was not only... An infidel, but he was a poser as well. He was exactly, pretending. a plagiarist, right. um, that he stole the work. Yeah, right. no, that, that was the accusation. And, and actually, it was, it's accepted. In fact, it's still pretty much accepted there. I did find one scholar who um, does not agree, but the, the consensus basically says that Thomas Young was the real author of Ethan Allen's book, or at least the author of the bulk of it. Now, um, Thomas Young, fascinating character, turns out. He's the, he is the unsung hero. He's the real forgotten founder. I know that right. there are a thousand forgotten founders, usually when someone's pushing a book <laughs> on a particular one of them. But this is the real thing, right? I mean, this guy, he, he kicked off the Boston Tea Party. I mean, right. how much better does it get than that? Um, he was one of the co-authors of the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, which is, I think, the most interesting document out of that revolution, aside from the Declaration and the U.S. Constitution. I mean, it's the first uh, formal constitution, liberal democratic constitution of a major state, and it's actually one of the most radically democratic constitutions right. of that period. And here's this guy who wrote that. Aside from kicking off the Boston Tea Party, he was also involved in the Stamp Act riots. Um, no one's heard of him. But then he also turns out to have left behind a certain um, set of works on, on philosophy that where he, you know, he would go into print um, uh, in these confessions in newspapers and say, this is what I believe. And it turns out he's a, he's a deist, right? right. Uh, but more than being a deist, in fact, he also articulates some of these fairly uh, radical positions and ideas that I found in Ethan Allen's Bible. It's called Ethan Allen's Bible, by the way, the book. And uh, that for, informally, it's called that. Um, and so he provided still more evidence that there was this um, strand of ideas that hadn't really been explored, um, this connection with radical philosophy in Europe. Um, that perhaps played an important part in the revolution, and precisely because he was really so involved in the revolutionary project. I mean, he was, he was on the vanguard. He was right. buddies with Tom Paine. He was uh, working with the, the radicals in, in, in Boston with Sam Adams. He was working with the people in Philadelphia. I mean, he, was, he was the sort of uh, Lenin of, or not the Lenin, perhaps he wasn't quite that high in the hierarchy, but maybe the Bukharin of the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that he actually played a role, and that there was this issue where they needed to actually almost mount what, what you call the coup d'etat in, uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, here's he was, another... He was instrumental in, in right. actual the, the machinations, uh, not, not only of, of, of riots and the Tea Party and so forth, but actually in changing government so that it was receptive to what right. became the Pennsylvania Constitution. Well, let's make a little aside on something you alluded to earlier, that, you know, the American Revolution, it's a very complicated event, a lot of things going on, and when you make general statements about it, you're, you're going to be wrong, <laughs> just generally, but, um, <laughs> but I will put that aside and go ahead and make them anyway. I think you can bracket a certain part of that event that is a parochial, local struggle of one group of people, one elite in particular, against another, right? The basic, the struggle, the struggle for um, national independence. Um, 
And that's interesting. Historians should really look at that, try to figure out the motivations for it. I'm sure it had a lot to do with this tax issue um, and other things. But you can isolate that and to some degree ignore it uh, because there's this other part that I find much more interesting, which is uh, what I think of as the revolutionary part of the revolution. That is the part that involved a change in the principles of government. Um, Tom Paine, he pointed to, the, to this distinction. He said that um, basically the revolution would not have been of interest had it not involved this revolutionary part. Abraham Lincoln, the same thing. Jefferson also said, really, you know, it wouldn't be worth talking about our little event here had we not changed the way right. in which people govern themselves. So we've made that little aside now. Here's the link with Thomas Young and what really struck my interest. So Thomas Young has all these radical ideas, these, these ideas that we, we call dance, but I think we, we mislabel them. Um, they've usually been regarded as being something different from the revolution, um, just a kind of a current of thought that happened to be occurring around the same time. To me, it became increasingly clear that these ideas and the revolutionary part of the revolution were um, intimately connected. They're, they're, they're very much um, the same thing. So let's talk about the ideas a little bit. You've mentioned the word deist several times. Uh, uh, sometimes people look at it as a, or looked at it as a synonym for infidel, and sometimes people thought about it differently. If I'm sitting there watching this show right now, I think, that doesn't sound terribly, it sounds like I believe in God, if I'm a deist. What are we talking about here? What is, what is, what is deism, what did deism mean then? And, and let's not talk right now so much about what it means now, but can you give me some definition of, of, of what deism actually meant then? Well, I, I, I really hate to, um, I hate oh, to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why. Because um, I don't think ideas work that way in history. That is to say, um, yeah, sometimes you can come up with a, a, a program that uh, represents a particular school of thought, uh, and then that suffices to explain its impact and influence. Um, sometimes you can do that. In the case of deism and the American Revolution, I don't think you can. And here's why. Um, deism is this kind of open platform on which you can occupy a range of positions. Now, there are some constraints on that. You can't always, uh, there are some things you can't abide by if you're a deist, right? So those are very important. Uh, but within the deist world, there's, there actually is a pretty dramatic range of what you can, um, where you can be. And that matters a lot in terms of how you interpret the, how you have impact and how you interpret it. So um, let me try to put some... Let's, let's, some... let's talk about what is not. Let's talk, about, okay. let's talk about what is not. Because we had a culture, the people who were, who were labeling... Uh, uh, who are labeling uh, people like Thomas Young, maybe even people like Jefferson, people who are upset about these individuals and saying you're an infidel, you're a deist, and they're using that synonymously. They have a different set of beliefs. Right. And so what, and, and, and how could we characterize their beliefs, or at least the difference between those and the people that they're labeling as deists? What is deism not? Um, let me put it in terms of you know, historical traditions, because I like to think sure. in these terms, and, sure, sure. and it may be a little bit opaque. Um, there's a, a school of thought that's called the conventional wisdom um, that deism is um, a descendant of the Christian tradition. Okay, that it's basically a watery form of watery Christianity. So the idea is that you you go from Catholicism through a Reformation to, to uh, Protestantism, and that makes everything, um, let's say, less connected with the hierarchies and the structures, uh, and then you ultimately end up with um, uh, Deism, which uh, you know is a sort of continuation of 
the basic theology of Christianity, and, uh, uh, but in a very lightweight form. Um, and I think that that view is largely incorrect. Um, I think that deism, the thing that it fundamentally excludes is um, religion, and I would say specifically the Christian religion, um, as it was understood at the time, and probably as the, uh, the way it's understood by most uh, people today. Um, the alternative, uh, which I think I can provide a fair amount of genealogical support for, um, is to say that deism is essentially a descendant of the uh, ma materialistic tradition that arose in early modern Europe uh, with the rediscovery of a number of ancient texts. Okay, so I, 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 want, sorry, I want to go back and trace the lineage because you have a story to tell and I kind of, I, I feel like I sidetracked you. Mm -hmm. So, because I asked you for a specific definition and then you were reluctant to give me a specific definition, which is certainly fair enough. Um, uh, I, let, let me start again. So, or, or let me try to summarize. You're captivated by this guy who's written this book, Ethan Allen's Bible, as it's come to be known. And you think, wow, here's this person. There's a mythology around this individual. I've heard about this individual. Um, I never would have imagined that he would have written something so philosophical. Um, moreover, this becomes, uh, this is anathema to, to the people because they're, they, they think it's, it's so horrible. It's an awful book. It's so god-awful, nobody should ever read it. And moreover, he didn't even write it himself. He's worse than that. He's a plagiarist. He, it was this guy, Thomas Young, who wrote it. So you find out about Thomas Young. Presumably you knew something about him before. I knew nothing about him, but maybe you knew something about him. Thomas Young turns out to be, as you say, the pivotal, one of the pivotal people behind the American Revolution, a lost founding father, at least in terms of ideas. This is somebody who played a tremendous role, as you write, to actually help generate the ideas behind the revolution. Um, and, to, and also to be right there in the, in the, in the pits, politically, uh, raising the rabble, starting a, uh, helping to start the Boston Tea Party, and, and so forth. And he was also somebody who had this word, and this is, I guess, where I got on this big deus rant, because I wanted you to specify. So he had this label thrown at him, this deus label thrown at him. But the thing which I, I think uh, I sidetracked you from saying is that there seemed to be, in his, in his statements and in his philosophical positions that he was very clear on, as you write, Thomas Young, there did seem to be a connection between what he professed to believe and some of the aspects in Ethan Allen's Bible. Um, and, and, and so then my sense is there's a, then this, this presumably makes you think, well, there's a, there's a narrative, there's a story. How did these ideas actually get started? Where did they come from? And, and, and so forth. And this is where I interrupted you because I think you were about to well, go, go, go on there. Is that a fair is that a fair? Yeah, no, that, that, of, of that, that's happened? fair. And look, and look, there are just an awful lot of ideas in play here, and it's very hard to compress them all into um, a, a small setting. But um, I'll tell you something. Very, very, um, this is a little obtuse, but it, it, here's where I thought the relationship between Ethan Allen and Thomas Young was very interesting. Um, they clearly shared a certain set of ideas in a general way. Um, and yet, I began to see that there were some subtle differences. Um, and in fact, I ultimately came to the conclusion that the differences were made it impossible for Thomas Young to have actually written Ethan Allen's book. Aside from the fact there's no evidence that Thomas Young <laughs> wrote Ethan Allen's book, the, philosophically, they were, um, they were distinct. Now, the dis distinction between the two, I think, is relevant to clarifying this issue you raised about the definition of deism. Um, so, one part of that distinction has to do with their understanding of God or their, their theology. And, of course, that's central to deism because the term deism comes from the Latin deus. And right. It basically uh, involves some sort of doctrine about God, right? 
if you go far enough into Thomas Young's writing, what you find is that he was a deist who is not really distinguishable from a pantheist. Uh, and I use that term pantheist in a Spinozist sense. So he doesn't, isn't, not that he thinks that there's little spirits coming out of rocks and trees, that kind of pantheist. He basically thinks that there's no fundamental distinction between God and nature. Right. So right? nature, so the laws of physics, uh, to use a modern context, that's it. That's all there is. The, the, yeah, the... That's, I think that's right. And I, I think you could put him in the same group as, say, Einstein, right. um, and as I said, Spinoza, and, and a large number of other thinkers before Spinoza. I don't think this is a, you know, Spinoza's idea. I think it's a, a general notion that's been around in the history of philosophy. Ethan Allen is a deist in, let's call it a classical sense. There are parts of what he writes that sound a lot like that, right? And in fact, if you're committed to the eternity of the universe, um, as I mentioned Ethan right. Allen was, right. it's kind of hard to avoid sliding into the identification of God and nature. Um, and if you're committed to a number of other doctrines that he has, um, it's hard to break apart from that. And nonetheless, Ethan Allen quite clearly says, no, no, I'm not going to go all the way there. I'm going to maintain a distinction between God and nature. Uh, so that you know, one is the creator and the other is the created. Um, of course, he does it in a way that no, you know, no respectable theologian would allow, because after all, he basically makes them co-evil, co-eternal, co-extensive. <laughs> so you're kind of left saying, well, how, how exactly do you tell the difference between these two? Um, but here's the point. Rhetorically, there's a clear difference between Ethan Allen and Thomas Young. Um, now, that difference um, in some of the historiography of that's out now um, is often used as a basis for distinguishing between, distinguishing between the radical enlightenment and the moderate enlightenment. So Thomas Young would represent the radical enlightenment and, and Ethan Allen would represent the moderate enlightenment. Um, and I would say traditionally most of the American founders have been clearly put into the, the, the moderate category because they all do basically acknowledge a creator and say, you know, isn't it wonderful what the creator has done for us and so on. Um, but here's the thing. There is this difference between Ethan Allen and Thomas Young, but as I'm already suggesting to you, the uh, sort of inner logic of Ethan Allen's thought is quite unstable on the point. And um, it's pretty hard to avoid, if you take his positions, it's hard to avoid sort of sliding back and forth between the identification of God and nature and the insistence that there is um, some distinction to be made. Um, because if you, if you look at, just in terms of the ideas, if I'm equating God with nature, that's, of course, a fundamentally different perspective for me, thinking there's a big guy with a beard out there who's looking to see if I'm going to succeed in life or fail in life or, or pass a test or, or give health to myself and my family and so forth. That's a completely different set of values and a completely different perspective, right? Right. Well, but here's what's important, I think. Um, at the end of the day, I'm not that concerned about whether, you know, this guy believed in God and that guy didn't and, um, you know, what their opinions were. Because, you know, Look, I'm an empiricist at some level. I'm not going to get into their brains. We can't resurrect them. And um, what matters is, you know, where's the, where's the payoff? Where's the um, what are the implications of the commitments that they have? I think when you boil down the commitments, the the core position of deism in all of its forms, in its radical and its moderate form, um, is this commitment to um, the lawfulness of nature or the idea that, um, as the ancient philosophers said, nothing comes from nothing, or that everything is explicable, that everything is intelligible. They're, they're basically committed to that fundamental notion. Um, and then that notion um, excludes uh, 
most of what we ordinarily think of as supernatural religion, or at least the common forms of supernatural religion. I'm not saying it excludes any form of piety or any form of um, any kind of activity that we could call religion in some way or other. And I think a lot of America's founders have a certain kind of religion, uh, but it does exclude uh, a lot of what most people understand by religion, the sort of common concept of religion. Um, and then I guess here's the interesting you know, tie and why, why I think it's important uh, for us and, and for the world. Um, that's in the Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, that uh, yes, there may be this deity of some sort, but he's nature's God. Uh, and when we claim independence from Great Britain, for example, we claim it in virtue of the laws of nature and of nature's God. Uh, and you know, when you, when you follow the position to its core, what it's, what it's really saying is all that really matters here are the laws of nature and the fact that nature is lawful and that it's comprehensible. You can add speculations on top of that, why it's important, but the important thing is you're committed to the lawfulness of nature, to its intelligibility, um, and essentially to a, 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 you know, a fundamentally rationalist position that I think in, inherently excludes supernatural religion and inherently excludes most of what most people think of as, as Christianity or, or, or Islam or any other religion. Um, and that was, I think, an essential part of, of the American Revolution and what made the revolution, American Revolution work. Now, I, but I, I do want to stress, though, that there are plenty of people like Ethan Allen and like Thomas Jefferson who are theists. They're committed to this basic logic but they have a certain uh, rhetoric, which I think is important in a, um, you know, in a kind of poetic way, to sort of understanding their sensibility that, that you know, involves a deity and uh, you know, has lots of nice things to say about it. It's just that the important point is that they're, they're, I would call them functional atheists. But, but we're really talking about the power of ideas here, right? I mean, you, you could be sitting there and saying, okay, Stuart, you're, you're telling me about Ethan Allen, this mountain man, you wrote a book. You're talking about Thomas Young, this guy I hadn't heard of, maybe I should hear of him more. I don't really care about that. These guys didn't make really the American, they weren't Thomas, they didn't write the Declaration of Independence, they didn't write the Constitution, they, they, weren't, they weren't major figures in, in, in the American Revolution. And, and from your book, my sense is, these are clues. What you're, what you're reading is you think, here's this guy who's mouthing this particular set of beliefs. Here's another guy who's mouthing very similar beliefs. Okay, maybe there's a radical, a moderate, there, there, there are different aspects. Hmm, that's kind of curious because, uh, as you wrote, one of the most interesting things about Ethan Allen's Bible uh, isn't so much that it was uh, so repulsive to so many people or that a woodsman could have written a philosophical work or anything, but that he was actually saying something which was very much in the air. He was espousing a set of beliefs that uh, many, many other people were. Jefferson was espousing effectively in private correspondence, and, uh, and Franklin was espousing in private correspondence, and all of these people. He was really serving as a signpost to us, as a window of some of these ideas that later, and you trace, trace this uh, very, very intriguingly, that later make their way, sometimes word for word, into just into documents such as the American Declaration of Independence and so forth. I mean, there are, there are specific examples of, uh, of words, and I'd like to come to that in a minute, but from, uh, but from my reading of the book, the sense is really that these ideas, you mentioned ancient philosopher, but I mean the, the person to put your finger on this was Epicurus, right, from the beginning, right? I mean, that seems to be, or maybe there's a, a pre-beginning to, to Epicurus, but at least that's a reasonably good starting point. So my reading of this is, hey, we're looking at the culmination of a set of ideas that goes back thousands of years 
and you're seeing the signposts. Somehow it's almost like it was buried, right? It's like a treasure hunt. You're seeing the signposts of, of, of these ideas that, that had been really downplayed by most people for hundreds of years. And you're all of a sudden saying, hey, that's odd. Why did this guy in this weirdest possible place be espousing these ideas? And I can trace the impact of these ideas all the way back thousands of years. I mean, that's pretty fascinating stuff. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, 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 I find it really interesting. And I, I, um, uh, you know, I, I like to think historically because at least, um, at least I know if someone said it in the past, it's not my own crazy imagination, um, you know, that it's, that it's there. Um, there's something really uh, an important intuition about the ideas and the way they work that, it, that I have to um, get out because otherwise um, none of this will make that much sense. Um, I think there's a common idea that, that the way ideas matter in history is um, that you, you get buy-in from large groups of people uh, and that if everybody in your society you know, subscribes to some particular ideology or some particular um, creed, um, that uh, that's the way in which ideas have influence, right? Uh, and I don't think that that's quite right. I mean, you can, there's certainly a way of explaining history where you look at these you know, universal beliefs and you say, well, that's the causal factor in history. You know, the fact that everybody believes you know, in some particular religion or that everybody believes in some particular set of unalienable rights. Um, I think that's a shallow way of understanding history. I think if you're going to understand the modern revolution, you need to understand that... Um, the ideas that matter are not always the ones that are most common or most popular. Um, and it's also not just the case that there happen to be the ideas of a handful of brilliant leaders either. Um, you need to understand that ideas have, have an effect really through their, um, through their truth. I mean, they basically have um, an impact because they clear out certain spaces of action for human beings that then allows for the creation of new orders and new uh, situations, which people can become perfectly competent in without necessarily comprehending. And to some degree, Ethan Allen, for me, became a kind of representative of this unconscious side of the American Revolution, strange as it may seem. I mean, at first I, I approached him as this representative of the you know, man who had his finger on all the important ideas. Uh, and then it became clear to me that actually, even though he, he, he claimed he never read any, any of these Deus books, he was repeating a lot of their tropes and arguments without necessarily grasping all of their interconnections and um, implications. And so, in a way, he became a kind of representative of how ideas, these core Deus ideas, can have this dramatic impact on history, how they can make someone like Ethan Allen work for uh, a, you know, a, a modern liberal-style government without necessarily comprehending exactly what they are doing. So they were in the um, air, as it were, and he was... They're, well, they're, 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 they're in the air. Well, they're also from Thomas Young. I mean, what, you know, it, it is clear that he got a lot of his ideas from Thomas Young, you know, verbally. He, he was conversing. But Thomas Young wasn't also the only one, uh, even if he was influenced no, by Thomas no, Young. I, well, they, no, they, they, were, they were in the air at the time. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and although we know he was friends with Thomas Young, he certainly could have gotten it from any number of people that he was hanging out with, because we know that some of the other ones were, were famous as well. Right. So the ideas are in the air, and they are shared. But uh, I guess I'm, I'm getting at this other point, which is that I don't think it's right to conceive of these influential ideas as just some set of prejudices or you know you know weird things that um, you know British colonials in North America happen to believe for random reasons, right? Um, I think they have a certain kind of truth to them. I'm not saying they're like the absolute truth. I'm just saying that they have they mark out a certain um, set of truths in, in an important way, and that someone like Ethan Allen was able to 
used those truths, was able to make them effective in the world without necessarily comprehending all of them, without necessarily um, you know, getting to the bottom of, he, he, there, there was not, let's say, a complete unity of thought and action in Ethan Allen. I would go farther than that and say there wasn't a unity of thought and action in anything the Americans did or in anything anybody else does, that we never quite achieved that unity. But there are degrees. For sure. Um, and, Ethan Allen, Ethan, and Ethan Allen, to me, came to represent a less um, complete degree, let's say, than Thomas Young. Thomas Young turns out to have been, in a way, more perspicuous in his understanding. He got, he got the connections. He understood that there is a direct link between the idea of freedom of thought and this concept of the lawfulness of nature. Right? Whereas Ethan Allen, there's no, you don't see that anywhere, whereas you, you do see it in Thomas Young. Um, that's a concept that you see in, in Spinoza, among, among others, right. um, and in that tradition that I, I argue that they're drawing from. Uh, the important thing is, if you look at the way the ideas worked on the American people, Ethan Allen, well, frankly, you know, his, his degree of consciousness was probably higher than that of most of his countrymen. So um, the American Revolution worked, and in fact, the modern revolution works, um, in part because it's able to marshal truths in a way that um, people can work with them, work around them, use them, without necessarily grasping the way in which they're all um, interconnected. So you have sort of partial you know, fragmentation of thought and, and action going on all the time, all over the place. Um, but you have a higher degree of coherence in, in some situations and in some cases, and they, and they can dramatically um, change history. By the way, you mentioned something else, too, that I think we should get back to. I mean, I, you asserted that the American Revolution is the, you know, the, the, the big event in, in world history. I don't think we should take that for granted. Um, uh, but I, I will say that I, I have become more of a sort of American exceptionalist in my, in my middle age. Um, you know, people like me were brought up studying European thought, thinking the French Revolution was everything, right? That the French was, Revolution was the, 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 the French Revolution was... The French Revolution was a disaster. Well, that's, well I guess, I, I, yeah, you're, you're setting me up for that. So, um, so the French Revolution, in my mind, yeah, it was just this kind of horrible abortion, basically. Um, and uh, both in terms of its impact on world history and its, and its actual immediate results there in France was, was um, nothing. The American Revolution was worse, was worse the Revolution. Was slide into tyranny, and it was the, the reestablishment of the monarchy. I mean, it was it was yeah, it was yeah, no. So, so it was all at another level of ideas too. It, it it started off with you know some interesting ideas, and then quickly turned into something else. But um, the American Revolution. You have to also remember that uh, you know we, there, at the time America was a pretty small place. It was a big geographically, but small population, and not not a big part of the world. So. Um, uh, so, well, it, what's important to remember is that the American Revolution looks a lot bigger in retrospect because America is a lot bigger. At the time, it wasn't necessarily so big. Um, but with all those caveats in place, um, there are some really obvious things uh, about the American Revolution. The American Constitution was, in fact, the first major effort to uh, build a government from scratch on the basis of the principles of enlightenment. Um, and it has since been, it was since copied uh, a, a great number of times. Um, the French revolutionaries claimed their inspiration directly from America, and the American revolutionaries thought France was the continuation, at least in the, in the first years. Um, so I, I have come, in retrospect, to become a, an exceptionalist in this sense. Um, I think that the American Revolution is probably the biggest part of this story of modernity from the perspective of ideas. I think it's where the important ideas um, exist. That doesn't mean that the, the writings of the American uh, founders are necessarily uh, some sort of Bible where you, where you will find all these things cataloged. They are actually mostly secondhand, but the important point is understanding um, 
the American Revolution as a place where these Europeans, these ideas, most of, it, most of which were fabricated in some sense in Europe and in European writings, uh, were realized in an right. important way. Um, and if you, if you understand the American Revolution that way, by the way, you also become less of an American exceptionalist in two other senses. First of all, um, you're not an exceptionalist in the um, classic theological sense where you think, you know, we've got a special relationship with God or something like that. Um, I think I think it's because I think God just is American. I think. That, that's <laughs> I, I think right. it's, it's very simple. Yeah, yeah, he's on our coins, right? Um, he watches baseball as well. And you're also not an exceptionalist, I think, in the sense that there's something peculiar peculiar about American uh, or British, let's say, traditions that is really important as an explanatory um, vehicle here. Um, what matters about America is precisely what makes it not specifically American. Um, it's the universal message, right. and you know, I think most people in the world understand this intuitively. You read the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, or you read the passage that you cited from Jefferson, and um, it still inspires. I mean, it still matters for people. It's fantastic, and, I mean, and the thing—the thing is, with—I I, want to emphasize that uh, I, I started off reading the the passage from Jefferson, but it should be mentioned that he wrote this at the end of his life. He wrote this well afterwards saying, yes, we've achieved this revolution, um, but, we, but it means nothing unless you, well, maybe you didn't say it in this particular way, but, but it must be put in a broader context, which is very much backing up your point of not American exceptionalism. It's not these particular people in this particular place have decided to throw off the shackles of tyranny. No, we are serving as an example of what mankind can and should and must achieve. And so it is by very nature general. I would, I would like to go back to these ideas, though, because one of the things specifically uh, that, that fascinated me when I read your book was uh, there was a, you make a very, very clear path between these interesting ideas that are somehow inculcated in people like Ethan Allen and Thomas Young and, 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 and buttressed, uh, uh, started maybe with Epicurus or maybe before and certainly buttressed by Spinoza and passage and come through to the, to the consciousness through Locke and you, you, very, you, you brilliantly, I think, make this historical chain where these ideas are reinforced and somehow subtly manipulated and, and transmitted to a wide variety of people, often covertly, often in, in different forms. It's a fascinating historical read. But then they wind up actually in the words of things like the American Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution. And, and often it, it, it's, it's, it's particularly interesting for someone like myself, who's by no means a specialist in this area, to look at some of these expressions that you use and, uh, or rather expressions that I know exist, and you're able to actually draw a very clear uh, ideological pedigree between these things. You're able to trace the roots. So you look at, 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 at the, this idea, we hold these truths to be self-evident. So when I, I, again, I'm not a scholar in this whatsoever, but I always thought, that's a stupid phrase. We hold these truths to be self-evident. I mean, you, you, if they're self-evident, you don't have to hold them. Um, uh, that's just a redundant expression. That's it's, it's very bombastic. I mean, what, what what are you actually doing by that? But but you express this notion that by saying we hold these truths to be self-evident, you're, you're actually saying something about the understanding, about what it means to understand something, about about this overall relationship with ideas that that is far far deeper than any sort of you know bombastic rhetorical device that that, that, that one might have. And I, I found that and some of the other uh, expressions that you particularly point out to be, uh, to be fascinating, not just from a historical perspective for me, but almost like a detective story. It's like, well, look, if you look at it in this particular way, you can see 
these ideas permeate. You can see the evidence for these ideas actually coming through in the words. And some of the stuff that had always been confusing to me or just odd or I thought non sequiturs start making a great deal more sense because of course these people when they frame these documents they thought long and hard about them presumably. Well they thought long and hard about them and they were also schooled in a certain um, tradition. They, they, were, they read a certain set of authors and they picked up their language from those authors and often those authors picked up their language from some previous set and you can, you can trace it back. Um, you know, in the case of we hold these truths to be self-evident, I mean, I, I wish I could um, provide a, a quick summary that won't sound completely incoherent in, in uh, here speaking to you. But let me let me give you this general precis of what I'm trying to say. Um, there are um, I, I sort of view the world this way. There's there there are a certain set of common concepts that we use every day um, that are reasonable to use within an everyday context. Uh, and then there are the ideas of radical philosophy. And radical philosophy starts with the idea, with the basic intuition that there's something wrong with these everyday concepts. Uh, now, one of these everyday concepts is um, our idea of the self and the mind, what we are as, as thinking things. Uh, and the, the ordinary idea, I guess you could say, is something like, you know, we choose what we want to believe. We kind of have these little mental images in our minds and we can kind of uh, pick this image or that image and this one we call true, this one we call false, and so on. Uh, so ideas exist as pictures in the mind and this is not a bad approximation of what thought is and um, it's reasonable to use in an everyday context. The early modern philosophers said this was fundamentally wrong, it's fundamentally flawed. Um, and by early modern specifically? I mean uh, well, look, I think, I think Spinoza articulated it best, but I think David Hume makes the same point, and I think Locke uh, basically borrows Spinoza's argument on the point. Uh, and we, we can go into more detail right, on that. That's fine. Um, but, th and actually, to tell the truth, I think it begins with Descartes. Sorry, I, didn't, I should have made that clear. Although, Descartes then flips to the other side and, and gets it completely wrong. But, that's not there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, what I'm saying is that there's this radical idea that says there's something fundamentally flawed with the common picture of the mind, and the common picture of the mind involves this idea that um, that our beliefs are, are purely uh, a matter of choice. Okay. We, we can just choose what we want to believe. And, and, and I think this is bound up with the idea of religion and faith as well, because most sure. people basically imagine that uh, you, know, you just can choose what you want to believe, and, and, faith, and that's right? what, yeah, exactly, the leap of faith concept. It's very intuitively appealing, but the philosophers say that it's fundamentally wrong. Uh, what they say is that basically belief follows evidence, uh, and that there's no real distinction to be drawn between uh, the reasons why we hold something true and the actual content of the belief. Or to put it in terms of, and I apologize for this, a sort of opaque dogma, the truth is its own standard, that it's not something external to ideas where it's intrinsic, that volition is also something intrinsic to ideas. And I'm, I'm sorry that sounds a little bit... No, well, um, it's fine. I mean, the basic idea, uh, as you've expressed very well, is you can't, you can't just choose something crazy if, if, uh, because... Uh, because the whole yeah. idea of using the mind uh, uh, predicates right. some, some reality behind so, it. So if you want to summarize it in a slogan, the radical philosophers say, set aside the common religious consciousness on this issue. Ideas, in fact, are not pictures in the mind. They are acts of understanding. They, they basically uh, carry with them their own truth condition. Right. Um, I don't think you should apologize for philosophy, by the way. I mean, you're, you're a philosopher. Well, I, always, I, always feel I, should, proud, I, I, I always feel that I'm not being properly making myself clear no, enough. No, that's um, here's the interesting historical point, that you, you can find that radical notion percolating down, right? and 
percolating is not strong enough where you can find it, you know, basically being handed down. And the way a baton is handed down through a series of philosophers and writers and going directly to um, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, uh, and Thomas Young. Uh, and so um, you can then see it in the, when you see that in the Declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, even though that phrase in itself is kind of um, a little bit um, anodyne, uh, if you understand where it's coming from, you see that it's got this entire history behind it and um, that that history not only shapes the language, but it actually uh, shapes the kind of the, the basic structure of the, of the whole revolutionary project. Because the revolutionary project is an attempt to um, change the world through, uh, through thought, through, right, to try to understand and change it uh, through, through acts of understanding. So, um, because we're going towards the truth, right? I mean, we're, 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 trying, we're trying to, you mentioned evidence-based and so forth, we're, we're trying to, to engage our minds, let me see, tell me if I'm wrong, we're trying to engage our minds in a deliberately, uh, well, in a deliberate way, uh, towards, down the path of reason, towards what is then inherently going to be correct, right? Truthful. That's what, we're, that's what the whole project is all about, isn't it? Is that a well, fair Yeah, no, I, that's fair. And I, I have to say, when I um, hear things like that, I wonder if I'm being some sort of crazy rationalist. But look, I think that, um, that there's... Well, there's... I, I just right? don't think... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I... No, because cause the, the fashionable view is to say, um, you know, everybody has their own truth, and we yeah, can all that's just... Come on, I mean... Okay, but, but, that, but that is kind of... <laughs> when, when you get into any kind of uh, political philosophical discussion, you usually end up at some point where someone says, oh, but that's just what you think, or that's just what Jefferson thought, or, um, you yeah, know, everybody gets to the, choose. This is not the postmodern roadshow, right? I mean... I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, I mean, I guess I should make clear I'm not a postmodernist and I'm not a relativist, but I'm also, you know, I also understand that those critiques are aimed at, you know, dogmatism and sure, absolutism, sure. and I don't go that way either. Are you very open-minded? I mean, I'm very um, open-minded with my, with my dogmatic streak. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry. So, um, so, but yeah, I don't think there's consciousness without truth, basically. And in fact, I think consciousness boils down to, um, to a form of, it, it's what we know. Uh, and, and I think that the, the sort of common idea is very much at odds with that. The common idea is, well, consciousness is some kind of experience. Um, you know, or a sensation. Um, but what's, what's important isn't even what, what you and I think. What's important is, as I understand it, this is what people like Thomas Jefferson thought. And, 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 and this is what, uh, so the argument goes that these were the ideas that they held. And so when you, when you see words and expressions like we hold these truths to be self-evident, that's what he's saying. And whether or not uh, everybody in the United States at the time, uh, or what became the United States at the time, believed that, or, or whether or not they believe it today, or whether you or I believe it is a different question. But it's, this, again, this idea of this, the power of ideas and the impact that ideas have actually had on the revolutionary right, project. Right. Um, another one that, that had always mystified me, and I, and, and I, should, I should specify that I'm not American, so um, I haven't had the opportunity to have these exegetical classes for years and years and years in junior high school. Had Ethan Allen succeeded, by the way, you, you would have been a, a, yeah. a member of the United States of America. Yeah. He, well, he went on to, he tried to invade Canada. But didn't he get thrown in prison for that? He did, yeah, bad move. Yeah, well, you know, always, don't, don't push Canada around. You know, yeah. uh, bad things can happen. But, um, but th this whole notion of the pursuit of happiness, so the pursuit of happiness was always it was somewhat mystifying to me because I always had this thought, well, that's a pretty hedonistic way to look at it. Well, we should be happy. We should go out. We should ma maximize our, uh, you know, whatever, our credit cards. And, and, and maybe that is, in fact, the, 
the latter-day version of what the pursuit of happiness is, that's a whole other issue. But, but at the time, and what you make very clear in your book is that there, there is a bit of a syllogism going on. So the, the pursuit of happiness is equivalent to the pursuit of virtue, it seems. And, and virtue is understood by rational individuals who are looking for the truth and, and interested in, in, in establishing the empire of reason and, and creating this, uh, this, this, this rational world where they can create acts of understanding. That's a very, very different perspective than your average person might have of the, of the, the pursuit of happiness. And to me, that also, it, it, again, one can argue whether you have the, the optimal interpretation or not the optimal interpretation, but, but you certainly can't argue with the fact that it's coherent. Because for me, there was this sense of the pursuit of happiness always stuck out like a sore thumb. I thought, what the heck, is, how does that fit into uh, even we hold these truths to be self-evident or, or, or liberty and democracy for all and emancipation and so forth? Because that seems like such a self-indulgent thing. But of course, it's, it, from your framework, it's not a self-indulgent thing at all. It all hangs together actually extremely well. Yes, I, I think that the pursuit of happiness is both um, the most popular phrase in the Declaration of Independence and probably the least understood, or at least the least understood in a uh, proper historical sense. Um, so you're absolutely right. If you look into the, the history of that phrase and where Jefferson would have gotten it from and then the sort of thought world in which he was working, um, in that world, happiness is identified with virtue and virtue is identified with the pursuit of knowledge or understanding. Um, and I can show you the text, and that would probably bore the heck out of anybody watching this, but you can find, uh, I think, the, the crucial transmission text in Locke in his essay concerning human understanding. Uh, but he's Locke is basically here, as in many other places, pilfering from um, Spinoza and the Spinoza's tradition. And, and they, of course, are borrowing an idea that go, you can trace in some form or other all the way back to the, to the ancients. Uh, but the key thing is this. It's misunderstood now because we think of it exactly as you say as a kind of shallow hedonism, as you know, just yeah, you know, whatever you feel like doing right now, just do it, pursue. Um, and it was understood, really, from the ancient world on, the genuine pursuit of happiness um, means understanding your genuine interests, understanding what really matters to you, and what really will um, uh, improve your, uh, further your individuality, yourself. What Spinoza calls the conatus. Descartes and Hobbes called it that as well, um, and uh, it was it was therefore understood as being essentially a very uh, I would say a kind of a deep hedonism, uh, or what I think of as kind of an imminent form of ec uh, of ethics. That is one where in which um, it's like self realization almost. Yeah, it's a, it's a form it's a form of self realization, um, and it's a self realization that ultimately involves uniting uh, happiness with virtue, the sense of doing good or being a, a good person. And, um, and knowledge, basically understanding, understanding the world and understanding oneself. So the philosophical origins of that phrase are unambiguously in that field. Right. And that's unambiguously where Jefferson got it from. Now, whether or not that's the correct way to understand how it uh, was interpreted at the revolution and subsequently is a different matter, although I would argue that in the revolution it's basically understood still in that sense. Uh, its original philosophical sense. I think later on it gets construed in a different way when liberalism becomes a kind of the entrenched system and it becomes an abstract right. notion and people are committed to it for reasons that they can't quite explain. And if, if I may just go back to what the, the general thoughts that you were offering about um, the importance of ideas. Um, you know, my, my project also began with this question, wh why do we believe in these obvious liberal truisms, what seem like truisms, that we have inalienable rights, that um, you know, we have the right to pursue happiness, uh, that we're all created equal, that government uh, drives from the consent of the governed. Um, 
And there's a common idea now that we basically have just embraced this because that's the way we do things around here, or we're just kind of committed to this because we like it. You know, right. we all we all want to be free and, right. and and be happy on our own. Um, so in a way, it, the, uh, the way I see most theorizing about the subject, I see it as kind of not answering the question. I see it as basically just saying, oh, we just accept this as an act of faith. I mean, we we just happen to be liberals because that's where we live and that's what we like. Um, when you go back to that original revolutionary context, you see that there's a very deep and coherent explanation for why those things are there. And that explanation not only brings all of those ideas together, it brings together the equality and the rights and the uh, consent of the governed and the other important uh, foundations of liberalism, but it grounds them in an explanation of the way the world works. And it grounds them in an explanation of the nature of the human understanding, in the lawfulness of nature, um, in you know, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be good, um, and also, by the way, and what, what role uh, religion or belief should have in life. So, so I guess my point is if you go back to that original historical understanding, yes, you could say it's irrelevant because it's just what a bunch of dead people thought and it doesn't matter, but I think it's illuminating because it, it explains how these things really fit together and how they still fit together. Right. And that's why I think it's like the most interesting thing about the American Revolution. The revolution they, they string together these um, things that we now kind of say, oh, we like them, we accept them on faith. But in fact, they not only, uh, not only do we happen to accept them for reasons that we don't always offer and can explain, but they actually explain a lot about the way in which our world works. We've, we're living in a world that operates according to ideas that we don't necessarily understand completely, but that in a way were understood or have been understood. This brings me up to the whole notion of religion, because these ideas that you're mentioning, these ideas that are coherent and part of a whole structure, they, they explicitly deny any invocation of some supreme being out there committing miracles, uh, somehow twigging around with, uh, with nature, um, forcing us, or at least implying that we should be undergoing these acts of faith that go against what we see around us, some uh, uh, opposed to this idea of, in, in the broadest possible context, denying our rationality. There is this notion that the United States should become an empire of reason. Um, and, and associated with it is something which goes very much against religious dogma then, religious dogma now. In particular, there's this question of, can one be, you talked about virtue before, uh, a little bit in the pursuit of happiness and what virtue actually meant, there's this question of, can one be a virtuous atheist? And, and that was something which was an issue of contention, uh, as you wrote about back in, in revolutionary America, and is still, I think, an issue of contention now. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit about, uh, about your... About well, so let, well, let's talk a little bit about um, the religion thing and then and, yeah, the virtuous atheist. So... You know, talking about the religion of America's founders and uh, the revolutionary generation is, you know, it is a minefield, okay, because, you know, everybody has an agenda, I guess, when they come to that particular subject. And we want to use the, the founders as authorities for, you know, whatever view we happen to have. Um, that said, there are a couple of things that I think are important to mention. One is that uh, there's no question that there were a fair number of uh, people that I think we would describe as religious in a, in a fairly ordinary way uh, involved in the American Revolution and who interpreted, interpreted the event in, in religious terms. Um, you know, there were people like John Jay running around and, and Sam Adams and so on, um, who, by the way, was a close friend and colleague of Thomas Young. Um, that's one point that I think you have to accept. Uh, and another general point, which for some reason is controversial in some quarters, but I don't think it, it should be, is that um, you know, by and large, 
the found, America's founders or the important ones, the ones that we think of like uh, Franklin and, and Jefferson, uh, Adams to some degree, Madison, Washington, they were um, simply not um, Orthodox Christians. They were deists. They, they belong to this uh, category that I'm, that I'm speaking of. So um, that's just a, as a matter of description, that's, that's where the things lie. I think another important caveat that you have to make also is that it, I, I don't see it as being, um, you know, essential to become a citizen of a modern republic to belong to one religion or another religion or no religion. I don't think that um, uh, we can make judgments about you know what set of beliefs, religious beliefs, are important for for participating in a in a modern state. Um, now that said, here's here's the important point I want to make about the place of religion in in the modern world. Um, religion does originate or, or does rest on certain uh, basic instinctive um, thought formations concepts. Um, that you can attribute to any number of sources. I, I'm willing to uh, believe that some of them come are the result of evolutionary forces and so on, but religion draws on that. Um, uh, we were not able to build a modern world without overcoming that in an important sense. So the modern world is not the realization of some uh, human essence, nor is it the realization of some uh, biological essence of human beings. It actually involves a kind of overcoming or trans, you know, transcendence of that, um, of, of our humanity in that basic sense. And, uh, and it's in that sense that it involves, I think, some understanding or it involves um, ideas. So that's all very abstract. Let, um, let, let, should we let go me, to the virtuous atheists? Well, let me just interject for a minute because you're, you're American and you live here, so you have to be much more careful than I'm going to be. Um, look, it seems to me that from, from reading your book and from just watching occasional American television, there are a couple of points that, that perhaps worth emphasizing. So tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. According to you, um, if you look at the, the ideas that, that drove, or the, or the or principal subset of the ideas that drove the American Revolution, were not only ideas that were uh, independent from the standard religious dogma of the day, which is you have to believe in a God who's going to punish you for if you do uh, if you commit sins and you're going to go to hell and God can create miracles and do all the rest of this kind of stuff, and on and on and on. They were they were not only uh, independent of that; they were in many ways directly contrary to that. The, these ideas were ideas that jarred uh, considerably. You could not hold them. A, a rational agent could not hold both of these ideas in in his or her head simultaneously. These ideas were actually contradictory. So that's point number one that I, I would like to say. Point number two. Uh, so you're going to have a chance to correct, tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. Point number two, it seems to me, is that there is the sense that many people have looked back, you mentioned this, as the founding fathers, these wonderful heroes, the founding fathers. And, and America is a Christian nation, and the founding fathers were obviously Christian, and clearly this was motivated by Christianity in the sense that we understand Christianity, and that there's this American God, and da 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 da, -da, -da and that's just crap. I mean, that's clearly not true, that the people who were actually driving the American Revolution believed in things that were 180 degrees away from this. Isn't that, well, the, isn't the, that what we're talking about? I mean, well, the, 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 yeah, that, is, that is what we're talking about. <laughs> Thanks for saying it so much more clearly. I was, just, I was trying to be obtuse in a defensive way here. Um, look, um, I think that this, uh, the use of the founding fathers by uh, America's reactionary populist right is, um, 
it's it's kind of disgusting historically speaking, but worse than that, uh, it gets America completely wrong, and it's and it's dangerous right. in a certain way. Right. I mean, it, it completely misunderstands the basis of American success. Right. Uh, it completely understands the nature of the modern world, and if it ever succeeds in gaining the kind of power that it craves, it will basically succeed in destroying the American project. So I think yeah, it's a really serious right. issue, right. and now I think that. Uh, and I think that those, yeah. So you know, to the extent that I can um, throw a little pitchfork against that, well, that that's great. I mean, although I say that with a certain degree of cynicism, because I, I know that many of those people are immune to um, uh, critique or fact, and I also know that things get immediately categorized. And I guess to some degree, I want to avoid, you know, falling into some sort of um, secularist uh, sure. uh, ghetto. Because, because where, you have a lot more to say is, than that. This is not just well, about uh, I guess uh, that, that, polemic that, against the religious right. I understand Well, that's that. right. Yeah, so if you un to understand my project, and be clear, um, uh, yeah, I think that the biggest political danger is on the right. On the other hand, the, the interpretive issues I'm talking about, um, I think have a lot of force against uh, many modern secular interpretations. I think they're incorrect, too, at sure. a historical level, I although I don't think they're anywhere near as, as bad or as dangerous as the other, as the other ones. So. Uh, that's absolutely true. Now, in terms of your characterization of the tradition as being diametrically opposed, two things. One is that that's absolutely true. And in fact, I would, you know, just to stress this point in terms of the, the names, these ideas came from ancient Greek philosophers like Epicurus, who was regarded as, you know, the incarnation of evil uh, throughout uh, most of Christian civilized history. Uh, they came directly from him. They came directly from the revival of, of that kind of materialist philosophy. And they came from people like Spinoza, who was branded as the atheist Jew, more or less correctly, even if somewhat inaccurately on both counts. But, but um, just, just to interject for one second. So Epicurus was, as I understand it, was, was, was the incarnation of evil, as you put it, largely because the Christian church realized that his argument was so powerful and so intellectually coherent that in fact there was all this willful distortion of what his argument is, which now gave rise to this notion of Epicureanism to being you sit around and you eat fancy foods and yeah, and no, we still we still live with stuff. the consequences of that um, counter-revolutionary propaganda. I mean, yeah, we, we use the term Epicurean to mean you know yummy and delicious, um, when in fact Epicurus was actually pretty ascetic in his overall approach because he thought that a, the the pursuit of happiness, perspicuously understood, gives rise to a, a fairly moderate approach to most things. So he said, you know eat mostly vegetables, don't eat too much meat, bad for the digestion. I mean, you know, he's actually a, uh, and take care more about the, the people you're eating with than the food you're eating, that sort of thing. So he's, he, he's completely misrepresented uh, at that sort of personal level in terms of personal ethics, but also, um, as you say, dangerous precisely because the kind of philosophy that he was putting forward was so coherent and was so, so believable, so credible to, to so many people. And it was credible because it had important elements of truth, that it staked right. out important um, uh, ideas, important understandings. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the genealogy in this case, I think, reveals quite a lot. And what it reveals is that the modern world uh, and our the American success was not founded on an act of faith. It wasn't, you know, people holding hands and, you know, saying, we believe, I believe, and so on. Uh, it was actually founded by people uh, thinking about the world uh, and using their power of understanding to change it. What do you think the Founding Fathers, if we could resurrect them today, looking at America in 2012, mm. would say? What do you think? What, do you, do you what think would they, Jefferson do now? What would you, not, not only what he, what he would do, because that's, that's the parallels, uh, I, I don't want to go there, but do, do, you, do you think if we could resurrect the Founding Fathers, they would get this sense of, oh, what the <laughs> heck? 
Oy vey. Um, <laughs> or, or is there, oh, okay, there's some kind of natural progression over time. I, 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 I kind of get that. In ter again, in terms of their ideas, in terms of this sense that we, we contributed towards this singular point in history of, of creating an event which was a beacon to the world, which was not just about America, but was about the possibilities of the human condition and the human spirit. And, and here, here are the consequences, whatever, 200 plus years later, um, would I'm obviously asking you to speculate. Mm -hmm. uh, but what, what of course, it might, might be interesting to speculate who would they be now? Like, what would Thomas Jefferson be some cranky academic somewhere, or <laughs> Ben Franklin might be like uh, sort of a Warren Buffett type figure or something like that? Oh, please, um, no. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, this is like counterfactual to the max. Look, here, I, here's, here's where I think this can be um, an interesting um, line of thought. You're saying that what, question what, wasn't what, interesting, aren't you? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, know, you ask the greatest questions, Howard. I really, I really love them. Um, so, I, I don't know, as I'm thinking about this, I, I think I'm going to sound like so Americanist I have to qualify it. Look, they, 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 they were flawed. They were human. We all know that. Blah, blah, blah. Thomas Jefferson had slaves and slept with one of them and so on. Um, but they had a number of really interesting attributes. Um, and I would go from there to generalize about how, what, what they would do. Um, they were incredibly interested in science and scientific things. So if, I'm sure if they looked around today, they would be fascinated. They probably would, just wouldn't lift their heads out of you know, their, um, their science magazines and their iPads and so on. I mean, they would, I think, be you know, fascinated by the degree of technological success. Um, they also were tremendously optimistic about the growth of America. So Ben Franklin thought that the population of North America would increase 16 times over the subsequent um, uh, 100 years from when he was writing. I think that was in 1750. Um, and he was pretty close. He was pretty close to the truth. And a number of others uh, writing at the time were also making these massive projections. Uh, and I think they would have been gratified to see that, um, that growth. Um, we haven't talked about slavery, and, and that's a that's a very uh, tough one. But uh, that's you know, the next book. I, yeah, um, you know, I think that um, there they would have had to face, um, you know, what was what's clearly their big failure. In uh, you know, and you can argue that they had no other way around, or or you can argue that they did, but um, probably they didn't. Um, but obviously, the United States paid a huge price for that, uh, and arguably still does. Uh, so that would have been an issue. Um, I think that, that you know, on on on, an, uh, on another side, perhaps it's, you know the, the the Republican critique has some merit. Look, they they they. I like to see them as philosophers, and maybe self-interest speaking, but it's true. I like to see them as philosophers, and I think that they were to some degree philosophers. Um, and I think m m the society that has arisen in America. Um, certainly makes that possible, but it doesn't make it, um, let's say, the main attraction of American life. Right. Um, or to put it another way, I guess I'm making a, a light critique of materialism on materialist grounds. That is, I'm saying that you know they they might have been a little dismayed with the 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 kind of shallow hedonism and shallow materialism that we have. Um, uh, not to contrast it with uh, some sort of you know purity along the lines of a city on a hill or some Puritan vision, but rather um, to contrast it with the idea of the pursuit of knowledge and self-understanding that you know, they understood that philosophers were right. interested in. So I think that would have been a, a, a line of critique. 
one thing, um, one thing that I've remarked upon to people, um, many, many people, and the more I come to America, the more, I, the more it strikes me. The older I get, the stranger this country seems to me. It's really an odd place. And you see, I mean, I guess it's cliche, but you really see these extremes in the United States. You see, you see a place that, that has an overwhelming preponderance of the greatest research institutions in the world, the greatest thinkers in the world. But the average thing that strikes anyone from any other country other than the United States when you turn on the television or when you walk down Main Street is you ain't living in the empire of reason when you're walking around. Right. This is not a place which values on a societal level somehow rational thought and rational discourse or even classical values of education or culture or what have you. It's a very, very strange place. Their views, the views of the Americans and when it comes to social issues Socialized Medicare, which is this, this, this enormous uh, issue here, a political issue, political football, has been in principle laid to bed by every other Western developed country. The notion of gun control, which is, again represents a case of American exceptionalism. America is such an odd place when you compare it to other first world democratic nations, both in positive aspects and negative aspects. It doesn't matter when you impose value judgment. It's very, very unique. And here's the, the, perhaps the paradox. We're talking about a revolution which was made in the interests of man, of mankind, of humanity. The notions of liberty, the notions of legality, the, the notions of, of uh, I was going to say fraternity, because I've spent too much time in France, but, but anyway, uh, the, the real thing. And, and, it, and to a large extent, it worked. I mean, the American Revolution, by, by many objective measurements, really, really worked. Um, but herein, herein lies, to my mind, a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, you have a successful revolution that incarnated and served as a beacon to the world and the possibility for triumph and, and influenced democracies and, the, and, and political change all around the world, in many ways just as Jefferson hoped that it would have. And then on the other hand, so again, this general trend, you have this one country that manages to somehow represent the general case. But on the other hand, America is exceptional. America's just odd. It's... it's it's, it's somehow incomprehensibly different than anywhere else on, uh, on planet Earth. So to me, it's, uh, do you see where I'm going? I see, yeah, I, see no, of, I, I, see, I, understand. I see a bit of a paradox here. And I'm wondering, I mean, you might even say the American Revolution, was it really the product of these ex exceptionally weird people that were capable of these things <laughs> that are still capable of these weird things? This is the place where you have a much, much higher percentage of being elected president if you believe you were kidnapped by aliens than if you say that you're an atheist. That's just crazy. Um, I, I sympathize, and it's, it's, it is sometimes um, tough to be an American uh, with a television set, um, sure. and, I mean, and especially I, so, now. So I'm not trying to attack no, you. No, I, I but I mean, no, it's, it's, it's really, this, this notion of American exceptionalism, what the heck is it? No, I think that, look, um, I think there are a couple of points that are really interesting what you say that are very important to draw out. One is that um, it, it would be false to infer uh, the present condition of America from its founding principles. I don't think that you can say the founding principles lead directly to where we are. Um, now, I could ask you what does, now but anyway. um, there, there is an argument, a, a certain interpretation of history that says they lead to where we are inadvertently. That is, the founders had one idea. They created a state. Uh, they made a very democratic state. And lo and behold, it turns out that the people are a bunch of idiots or they're kind of, you know, uh, vulgar. 
Uh, and so when you create this democracy, you create this world that we now live in. And so that it's the result, it's the consequence of their actions, but the unintended ones, so that right. their ideas were wrong. So it doesn't necessarily follow so much from their principles as they understood them, but from their principles as they worked themselves out in history. Um, I don't think that line of argument is actually deeply correct. Um, I think that there are two sources of the problem. One is that the United States was, um, was first. And being first is a disadvantage in an important way um, because uh, you set things up too early and you are then sort of stuck in some ways with um, pre-modern elements that, that remain within, the, um, within your system. Uh, so I think that's, that's one problem is that in a way, by being first, we didn't benefit from our own experience. The other is that well, American. That. Look what happened to them. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> All these generalities, you know, they're they're always wrong at some level. Uh, but here, here's another really uh, important factor. Uh, you know, a big part of America's success was, you know, crudely geographical. I mean, we had a continent that was empty as long as you weren't very good at seeing Indian, right? right. So. Right. Um, that is, you know, the, the basis of American power has always been its, its ability to have conquered this um, continent. Uh, and that, to some degree, uh, gave America kind of a buffer or a, um, a, a margin for error. And uh, human projects being what they are, we've exploited that margin to the full. Uh, so to, to, to the extent that America is weird or exceptional, it's, it's, it's precisely because it's kind of uh, inferior in that way, or it's been able to sort of get get away with stuff that um, other people are not able to get away with. Uh, because what what you say is absolutely right. I mean, uh, America has amazing research, that's uh, amazing education, uh, and yet it also has some of the dumbest people in the world. I mean, aside from the, let's talk about a little bit. But let me let me also just go back to the founders on one point on this. Um, I think you can argue that there is, has been a certain kind of betrayal, that or that it would be useful to go back to to the founders to look at, uh, look at their thinking on, on, on this issue. Um, education and enlightenment were absolutely central to all of their thinking. I mean, right. Jefferson was the first, uh, one of the first big proponents of public schools. And of right. course, he set up then the University of Virginia as well. But he's also going for public uh, primary uh, education. Um, they all believed in the absolute importance of educating the people. And, and that doesn't mean indoctrinating them. And it doesn't mean just teaching them arithmetic. It means teaching them how to think and how to free themselves from the limitations of their own ideas and their own uh, superstitions, superstitions and so on. That's so, the empire of reason. Uh, right? That's the empire of reason. And right. that is uh, intrinsic to their understanding. And what I would say is that that's not anathema or, or somehow contradictory with democracy at all. In fact, I think it's actually the foundation of democracy. I think the way demo liberal democracy works is not by realizing the preferences, the crazy individual idiosyncratic preferences of a bunch of, of a mob of people. It's actually about cultivating their understanding. It's a system that, that, that produces understanding and produces uh, reasonable action. That is the essence of democracy. So, otherwise you get mob rule. Right? right. So I think to the extent that the, the United States has you know, veered away from that and gone to this sort of mob rule where you know, if you, if you uh, believe that the earth was created 6,000 years ago and there are enough of you, well then that's the legitimate position and that's what gets elected to office, that kind of thing. That's not uh, the essential expression of democracy. That's a kind of uh, descent into uh, another form of tyranny. That's certainly the way the founders would have seen it, and I think that that's the, that's the correct way to see it. So is there anything in the extreme religiosity of the United States uh, that you, is it fair to in any way say that this is, this is a natural progression, or, or at least can somehow be attributable to events or attitudes uh, of, of 200 plus years ago? 
or is it just some weirdness? I mean, again, if I'm, if I'm sitting in Belgium, or if I'm sitting in Australia, or if I'm sitting in, in, in whatever, in India or somewhere, or in South America, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, these are, you know, it's an odd place. It's an mm. odd, this, this religious fundamentalism, this whole idea of we believe that there's an American, I mean, the, the people that believe, we, we joked about it, but the people that believe there's an American God, I mean, there, there are many of these. Of right, 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 right. Um, you just, you just, you don't have to look at extremists. I mean, you just look at the Republican National Convention, and I mean, you, you've, you've got some, some odd stuff going on there. Just odd, odd intellectually. It's just it's hard to justify intellectually. And, were the seeds of this somehow? Were the seeds of this somehow planted? I'm not blaming the founding fathers for this, because according to your story and, and, and what I firmly believe, they were fighting against some of the same silly superstitions all the way along the line. They were doing their best to kind of push. Back well, yeah, I mean, it. just as a matter of history, you have to remember that that religiosity, and especially that sort of popular religiosity, um, is uh, certainly precedes the revolution, right? I mean, you know, the first great awakening was, you know, there, you, if you read through the text and look at the events that happened there, it's weirdly familiar. I mean, it's, sure. you know, we have the same thing going on all the time in the United States. Um, I think the bulk of American, America's founders and the ones who mattered uh, were deeply opposed to that. I mean, they, that was what they were confronting. And that is what the philosophers that they were reading were confronting. Uh, we think of John Locke today, or at least the common view of John Locke today, the British philosopher, is that he was some sort of um, theorist, epistemologist combined with a uh, liberal political theorist. Um, he was obsessed with this issue of what they called religious enthusiasm, which is basically the revival of religions, and which is you know, essentially the kind of religiosity you see in a lot of America, or at least it's the noisy kind. Um, and they constructed their philosophy, they constructed their theories um, out of a desire to contain this out of a desire to, um, to, to limit it, to, to limit it, it, its political power. Here's what I think is important to understand about the context. That kind of religiosity was also uh, new to some degree, or at least it, it, I think it feeds off certain aspects of the modern condition. I think it, America was particularly susceptible to it even as early as the 18th century uh, because there were certain aspects of the American experience that were quite modern. There was a lot of dislocation. There was a lot of fragmentation of society. There was a, um, uh, you know, the people who, who, who went for the revival experience were usually uh, members of uh, lower orders, not entirely, um, but who had, who didn't know where they fit in the world. Uh, and that continues. That, that remains the story of America's religiosity. And that remains also the story of the, um, you know, the loud form of religion in America, it's basically, it comes out of this anxiety, this uncertainty. That's what, that's what drives it. Uh, you know, the, when, whenever you hear someone spouting about the depth of their conviction, you, you can usually be pretty sure that they've, they're fighting to sort of believe in it themselves, right? And it doesn't go very deep. So uh, that's where it came from. That's where it still is. Uh, and I think that, frankly, the founders understood that, um, unfortunately, the way most people interpret themselves, interpret the world, that anxiety gets channeled into uh, one form of superstitious religion or another, and that may be fine for individuals, it may be comforting for them, but you must at all costs make sure that it does not get involved in ordering your society. That's why they were adamantly opposed to priestcraft. That's why they, you know, I mean, if you read the things that Jefferson wrote about, um, about priests and the influence of religious ideas on, on government, uh, I mean, it's he, he could never say those things today and, and hope to be elected dog catcher, right? I mean, he's, he's just, uh, he's out there, and yet his point was fundamentally correct. 
Uh, and the system they set up, by and large, accepts that in, 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 in this sense. Religion in America is completely tolerated. If by religion you understand something private, something personal, your own belief, and your, your right to express that belief, that's guaranteed. That's part of the founder's thought, and that's really important. But if you think by religion, uh, if you think that religion necessarily involves, you know, ruling in the name of God and quoting from the Bible in order to justify your um, uh, policy proposals and so on, well, that's completely wrong. That is just not the American idea. That is not what America's founders had in mind, and, and they understood that's precisely how you get uh, theocratic tyranny. So the American idea is basically uh, opposed to that. Why does it persist? I think, frankly, it's, it's in, in my mind, it has to do with this margin of error. I mean, the, basically, America um, has been able to get away with this kind of stuff because in, geographically and for other reasons, we have, um, we're, we're in a position where we can't um, be uh, penalized too much for it. But if, if we ever are in a position where we have to play a tighter game, then, um, uh, then that kind of stuff will really get in the way. And frankly, it already is quite dysfunctional. I mean, America, America's policy... Uh, all, all modern nation states are you know, dysfunctional in various degrees, but, uh, but American policy is often you know, highly dysfunctional for reasons that go back to this excessive uh, excess of religion. You're a nation of excellence, so your dysfunctionality is also at a level. <laughs> but this conversation has been excellent for me. Thank you very much, Matthew Stewart. It's been a pleasure to talk about ideas with you. And, uh, well, thanks, Howard. I feel we could go on another 10 hours or so, but, uh, but we, should, we should stop. Well, we don't actually have to stop, but I'm aware of the fact that my cameraman has to catch a flight. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 3, along with separate discussions with David Armitage, Carl Gerth, Jennifer Michael Hecht, and Margaret McMillan. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. But those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.